This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Bear Boat Alaska, a pure DIY hunting game with one of their 37-foot adventure yachts. You and five of your friends can hunt, fish, set crab pots, shrimp pots, and take DIY to the next level. Bear Boat Alaska is locally owned by a Ketchikan resident who lives here year-round. Call Larry at 907-617-4542 or go to bearboatalaska.com. That's B-A-R-E boatalaska.com and tell Larry you heard about it on this podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Joseph Jackson, author of It's Only Fly Fishing, which was released earlier this month. He's been in Alaska Magazine, Fly Fish Journal, The Drake, uh, all the big ones. Uh, thanks for being on here, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeff. I, uh, I appreciate it. I've been a fan of your podcast for a while now, and uh, it's kind of surreal to be on it. So thanks for having me. <laughs> surreal. That's funny to, to hear that <laughs> said. You just you just kind of write the words, right? You don't really know who's who's reading them and what they think of it. So few people write letters or you get really no feedback or correspondence. You get the, the check for the piece, but you don't really know if people hated it, if they flipped the next page or what. So I appreciate uh, appreciate hearing that. Exactly. Yeah. Writers kind of operate in the dark, it seems like most of the time. So how'd you get your start in writing? Did you journalism major, minor, or just write stories? Good question. Yeah. So I kind of just got into it, you know, on a personal level, Jeff. I, uh, my original degree was in wildlife biology and it was actually kind of when I was working through my undergrad that I started writing trapping articles like fur trapping. Um, and I realized, you know, people would publish this and, and sometimes pay me for it. And I thought that was pretty cool. Um, cause I could do the things I love and then come back and write about it and, you know, get some, get some readership. So that started happening with, uh, fly fishing. I'm starting to do a little more like history based and, uh, upland bird hunting, um, articles around those things. So yeah, just kind of fell into it stuff that I love doing. Um, and then reflecting on that through writing. How did you deal with the, obviously, I'm, I'm sure that you had some rejection along the way. No one just sends out their first article and is published. And if that does happen, there's some some lean times in between. But how did you handle the the initial steps in the in the writing? Yeah, um, so I guess I kind of had a pretty cushy start because um, I was writing for a lot of really super niche trapping magazines. And they're, they're wanting to take, you know, whatever they can get. Right. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, this 18, 19 year old writer that, uh, was probably not producing very good stuff, but you know, they, they wanted it. And so it gave me some, some confidence boost right off the bat. But, uh, yeah, definitely once I started trying for the bigger magazines, it was a lot of rejection. Um, but I kind of told myself, you know, if I'm not getting rejected, I'm not putting myself out there enough. Right. Um, so in fact, and you know, other writers do this too, like Stephen King has stories that, you know, having a nail in the wall and just, you know, putting rejection letter after rejection letter on it. Um, and I was kind of the same way. And I was, I was almost a badge of pride uh, to see how many rejection letters I could get. Cause I figure law of averages, you know, you get a hundred rejections, you're bound to get at least one positive response. So yeah, yeah I still have a rejection letter from Field and Stream. And now you can't even find. Uh -huh who the, you can submit to. There's no, like an email for submissions and, yep. um, those, those smaller magazines, and I don't even like calling them smaller magazines cause they're so important for people. And they're so willing to help people out. Um, they'll take submissions, they'll pay you on time, which is super nice. You, you'd be amazed at how many people that, you know, that aren't writers, uh, they'd be amazed by how long it takes payments to come out and how some magazines end up being, 
just like an advertisement type thing, and it's mostly about the advertisements. They don't really care much about the writers. Uh, that's not like a woe is us or poor us or anything like that, but it yeah. is interesting to see uh, the different the different models and, and how certain magazines value writers, and then it makes sense that, that really good writers gravitate to those sort of magazines. It's a lot of fun, too, when you really want to put forth your best effort on that because it's a big deal and you want to keep that connection. Exactly. Yeah, well, it's it's nice. You you don't you rarely see like receive like positive reader letters. You rarely know, you know, whether or not you're making an impact. But yeah, the uh, at least the magazines that I've kind of fallen into writing for, they uh, they do a good job of making you feel valued. So when you're writing a story, do you sit down afterwards and just kind of try to type it out? Do you wait for uh, inspiration or how do you uh, that post fishing trip marinade or hunting trip marinade? How does that go? Yeah. Um, so I try and really sit down and get after it as soon as I can, you know, before the random thoughts that you have, uh, during fishing or hunting trips sort of leave your brain. Um, and I also try and combat that by, uh, carrying a, a notebook with me basically wherever I go. So if it's in the field, it's a right in the rain. And, you know, if I have thoughts, I'll jot them down quickly. And then when I get home, I'll, uh, I'll put those all in, in like a Google doc or something that way I can work on it from any device. And, uh, I'll just start typing, you know, and as you're, you know, living through a fishing or a hunting trip, you kind of, not all, all the time, but often I kind of can sense the narrative structure that I'm going to take. You know, I, I think of the important things that have popped up and um, I'll try and follow that. But then I'm also, I try and keep myself as open as I can to, um, you know, improvisation, uh, yeah. letting the story take me where it's going to take me. Yeah. Um, and I don't always know that. So, yeah. but yeah, as soon as I can trying to translate my notes, uh, hopefully they're legible, you know, <laughs> in the field, but yeah, trying to, trying to translate those as, as fast as I can. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Sometimes I'm out there and I'm thinking about the story too early. I'm already writing it in my head and I'm yeah. not, not, I'm not finished with it yet. You know, I, sometimes it's like, this is going to be a tragedy and I, I hate where this column's going to have to go because it's going to be about how, you know, the fish didn't show up, the deer didn't show up the whatever. And they can, you can almost like take yourself down a hole that you don't need to be in it. That's going to be the self-fulfilling prophecy. But other times it's, you just kind of push that away and say, no, 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 let's, let's play the whole thing out here. We're only in act two. Let's just uh, let this thing develop and then push those thoughts away and and really enjoy the whole experience and then get home and then make some sort of sense out of it. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point too, Jeff. Cause I know at least in my personal experience, I feel like the stories that I just kind of let happen and then reflect on them later, those end up being better than the ones that I try and, you know, almost script. Yeah. Yeah. Early on in the writing and hunting too, it's, you have to decide what, hunting or fishing is going to be to you like how you're going to define it is it going to be just uh you know they talk about the different stages of it and different phases and then also when you start to create content from it you also have to decide what you want that to be as well so it's like this personal philosophy fly fishing is going to be an escape and then i will also write about it it's going to be a fun thing that i do or is fly fishing going to be a money-making means and is it going to be my path or my way of, of notoriety in which case it's less about fishing and more about kind of feeding the ego how do you how do you define what fishing is to you and also 
your writing in this space? Do you hope to one day be a legend in the writing or, or how do you deal with, with expectation and your definition? Mm. That's a, that's a thinker there. Um, in <laughs> yeah, I kind of dropped that one in. That's a heater. That was a Friday no, afternoon a heater. Yeah. heater. <laughs> no, that's great. I appreciate it. Um, so in terms of like what fly fishing means to me, I, I wrote this whole book, you know, it's only fishing about that. And I still have no idea what fly fishing is to me. You know, I know, I know elements of what fly fishing is to me. It's, uh, and I mentioned it in the introduction of my book, it's like a return to childhood almost because you're, I don't know. I try and shed as much of my ego as I can when I go and I go, when I go fishing, um, I just find that very freeing. You know, I'm, I'm getting better at letting the fishing journey take me where it's going to take me. Cause you can't in fishing, you can't plan for anything, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's up to the fish. It's up to mother nature, you know, call it what you will, but it's basically not up to me. And I, I, I guess that's a, a pretty salient part of what fly fishing is to me is just surrendering to that. Uh, in terms of the writing, I would say I'd, I'd like to be known more as a, a writer than, than a fly fisherman. You know, I don't consider myself a, a particularly good fly fisherman. I think I'm, I'm reflective. That might be my saving grace is, you know, I look, I'm very detailed in, in journaling, you know, whether it's writing a, an essay or not. Um, I'm writing what weather conditions were like, how the, the fish were behaving, like good spots, bad spots, that sort of thing. So I think just by sheer observation, I end up doing okay. Um, but yeah, I would hope that my my synthesis of my fishing trips is is good enough to where, um, you know, I could someday be on the level of like the John Gearox and the Ted Leesons and, you know, the the vaunted fly fishing writers. I know that's uh, that's a lot to hope for, but that's kind of the goal, right? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I think... Um pretending to be overly humble isn't necessarily reasonable because you have to have enough confidence in the space to know that you're worth, like this is good enough to be submitted. This is good enough to be published and this exactly. is good enough to, to get pay for it. Um, it's work. It's a, it, it takes time. It takes effort. And so you should be paid for it. And if you just kind of hope, well, maybe, maybe just one reader. And if one reader is there like, yeah, that's a nice thing to say. Um, but then on the other side of that, when, you know, people just come in here and, oh, I'm going to be the next best thing. And I think it can come through in their writing. Some of the, the, you know, the, the icons in fly fishing writing, it was like this subtle delivery of the art and the, and the why of all of it. It wasn't some, you know, overt exercise in, you know, meme writing or something like I want to write this perfect line that people are going to one day share. It's just being super honest and telling the story in such a good intellectual way. It was just fun. It's just fun to read and it's great to read. And then you go back and you kind of lament the past or the loss of the past, uh, yeah. you know, in the fifties and sixties, you know, the, the steelhead fishing and Kings fishing in Alaska. And then, you know, the old school tarpon fishing in Florida and it's just written so well, the craft is so good. Um, and then now it's, you know, being true to yourself, telling your own story, not trying to be someone else, be your version, but you know, be influenced by those other people. And I think it's super important to do that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's something I, I had to, uh, you know, going sort of back to my writing beginnings, like as I started getting more into fly fishing writing and first of all, realizing that was a thing because I, you know, I definitely didn't read fly fishing literature growing up. 
Um, and so when I discovered that, like in college, it was, you know, everything I wrote was like in the vein of Ted Leeson, John Gearock, Thomas McGuane. And then over time, you know, as you get more practiced, I kind of try to take on my own voice because, because you're exactly right. Like those, those writers are, are well known and cherished because they just have a way of almost being invisible in their writing, but telling the story so well that it just comes off as, as totally honest. And then, you know, for someone to, to imitate that poorly, it just comes off as pretentious and, you know, mm -hmm. nobody likes it. So yeah. trying to get past that point, I guess, and into my own, uh, into my own style has been one of the hurdles that I've grappled with. Yeah. Gerak's one of my favorites. You can reread his book over and over again, or whatever book it is, you can reread it over and over again. And you might have lines that are underlined in there and you know exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. But just from the, from the element of craft, when, if you're a writer and you're, and you're stuck and you just how effortless it is for him to write that, which is encouraging because you don't have to overcomplicate it. Just tell the story, just tell the exactly. story. But then also he'll word something so eloquently you think, dang, <laughs> uh, it would take me a page to try to just maybe get something, but it's just so perfect there in one sentence. So that's, it's good to, to be reminded to tell your own story and let that tell the, tell the story. And then also uh, just the amount of, time he spent to get to that spot and man his books are are great and i, I love rereading them and um it's tough to it's tough to think about the one day it's going to be the last book and i, I try to cherish that now before uh, he stops writing because after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers if we've learned anything it's that there's always a catch so when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them and using their service, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For anyone who hates their phone bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. I was hesitant about having to get a new phone and a new phone number, but with Mint, you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone and your same phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying for one or for a family, and at Mint, families start at two lines. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and to get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com/waypoint. That is mintmobile.com/waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com/waypoint. Man, I could just I could take one every other year forever. Yeah. Me too. I know my the bookshelf to my right here is is full of. I pride myself on having every one of John Gearock's books, and uh, I'm definitely looking forward to the the one that's coming out in uh, March. I think it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you ever feel that you get redundant? I get this sometimes. I write a, a a column, and it seems sometimes that the same themes come up over and over again. I think, man, are, are people tired of hearing the same sort of thing because it is different, but it is the same. Um, you know, a guy like Gearock, it's, it's fly fishing. It's the same places. You can guess where he's going to be, but still it's, it's just different enough. Do you ever kind of get into a rut and, 
and think, ah, this is redundant or worry about it being uh, tired? Yeah, I definitely think so. I have my, I have my preferences in terms of like themes, you know, I, and even places that I, I fish too, you know, I tend to gravitate toward interior Alaska and in my fishing and then therefore, you know, settings and fish and techniques, those can all end up being the same. Um, and I probably reuse lines. I don't know. I hope not, but you never know. Um, and then, yeah, themes too. Like, I don't know. I take a, I usually take a hard look at, at the past and like my childhood, whenever I write about fly fishing, you know, just going back to my origin sort of thing. And, um, yeah, I have to be careful and kind of remind myself, like not everyone cares as much about your childhood as you do, you know, like yeah, make it, make it relatable, like make it specific enough to be poignant, but don't, don't overdo it. Cause mm -hmm. yeah, nobody, nobody cares at a certain point. Yeah. I think there's, if you, if you can use it as a connector and I think that's that thing it, that, that makes the difference between a podcast, that's a conversation that has interest and then writing about things that have interest versus it's people telling inside jokes on a podcast, which gets really boring because you're not there. And so it doesn't really make any sense. There's no, there's nothing to kind of grab onto. Uh, same yeah. thing with reading. If it's just this, it's, if it's all about you and it's all about, you know, your impact, your, your past, your inside uh, jokes, and there's no, no connecting element, then it ends up being kind of boring. So, um, and then also again, not uh, applying too much weight to something that happened in the past. Um, right. If, if it is instructive, it, if it was a key moment, then talking about that. And I think that resonates a lot with people because uh, people are interested in other people's journeys and how people got to different places. And I think that'll always be compelling, but yeah, it's tough to, to know when is too much and what is relevant and what is not. Yeah. That's funny. You mentioned that. Cause my, my book in my introduction, I mentioned like my goal with this to was to write an essay for every fishing trip I took in 2020. Um, most of them have been cut out because they were complete slop, you know, <laughs> and that's the total truth. Like I think there are 16 or 18 chapters in the book. And I bet you, I wrote, I don't know, 30 or so. Um, you know, I wrote start to finish. I thought they were good. I, I edited them with the intent of putting them in the book. And then I just realized I'm either being redundant, like this is, just no good. I don't know what I was thinking here. Um, or readers are just going to get bored, like you said. So, um, yeah, sometimes you have to come down with that butcher knife and chop what you chop, what you like. That's the most important part to tell my journalism students, like write a thousand words and then cut down to 600 or 500. Editing is where it all happens. If yeah. there's, it's, you can't just write start to finish, sometimes you'll have a great, a great lead. Like, Oh, this is definitely how I'm going to start. But sometimes you fall in love with something that ends up not matching or end up not being good. And you just got to open up another document and save the cut stuff in there to hold on to it and probably never use it. But yeah, the editing part, uh, is so vital. So I, yeah. I started 2020 with a similar project. My goal was to write 5,000 words per month to just give people an idea of what Alaska is like year round. People come up here and they'll, you know, they'll go on their little pilgrimage to whatever river and they'll, um, or, you know, go hunt caribou or whatever. They'll, they'll tell that story when they get back home in those magazines and whatnot. So I wanted to give people a year round look of what it's like here. Sure. But of course, you know, March happens and things get, uh, I think you referred to it as things going sideways. Um, yeah. how, how did that go for you? Um, just when March started to happen and like what your plan was and then how things started to, to happen, how was that? Yeah, I mean, really 2020 wasn't super jarring 
to me, um, at least in terms of, of fishing, uh, my book strays into like, you know, the struggles of, of young adulthood, because on the side, like I was transitioning from um, a salary job in video production to then, you know, interning to be a, a secondary teacher. Um, so that part was definitely that through that had a lot of wrenches that were thrown into the plan. But um, I tend to be more of like a road system dirtbag fisherman. So like I could still do all that stuff being being in Alaska year round, you know, I could still do that stuff. Um, I had some plans actually to come down to to Juneau where my wife was working at the time and uh, fly fish for some coastal cutthroats in in May. That's one of my favorite species. But being in uh, well, South Central Alaska now, I don't don't have that opportunity. So that was kind of a bummer. But then you know, just kind of made the best of it. Um, made the best of uh, teleworking. I have a I think I have a line in my book that teleworking is just a perfect excuse to fly fish on work days, you know, yeah. or weekdays. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, actually it turned out to be a pretty great season for me just cause I was able to, to fish a lot. And then, you know, I had, I guess the, the creative space to, to think about that and reflect on it and ultimately write about it. Did you second guess teaching because you saw what everything was going on with the, uh, with the masks and the, is it zoom and all that stuff? Were you like, eh, maybe not, maybe I don't want to get into this profession. I did. That was the wackiest teaching internship, I think ever anyone yeah anyone who was doing their student teaching in 2020 will probably say the same because 75 percent of our year was spent on zoom which of course meant everything i'd learned the past three years about managing a classroom and teaching face to face just went out the window you know and i had we went back at uh the beginning of fourth quarter so i had like four or five weeks of of in-person teaching before you know it was summer and then the next year I was going to be looking for a full-time teaching gig, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was such a contradiction or such a weird juxtaposition or whatever, just to know that you're built for it. If you live in Alaska, chances are that you're built for the pandemic type thing. As far as Mm -hmm. what your hobbies are, you're like a lot of things are outside. You don't live in Alaska for the indoor life. Some people obviously can't choose where they live. Um, but by and large, a lot of people, the, the things that you do to, to just, live your everyday life are things that ended up being really good and helpful and, um, healthy for, for COVID. So your life outside of your job. Okay. I'm good. I like this. This is perfect. This is, I'm glad I'm here. I have these habits. I don't have to convince myself to start this new habit of hiking, fishing or whatever. Um, but yeah, the, the school part was, man, it was bizarre, but living here was nice because kids also, had those same sort of habits and hobbies. And on the days that we were at 50% capacity and we didn't have school on, on Friday, you know, kids would go out hunting. And I just thought, man, that's awesome. They wouldn't show up to office hours, but I'm thinking that's what, what a great healthy way that they can get through this here. And had they lived down South, you know, you're stuck in an urban setting. You're, you're locked inside and you're just, you're, you're crinking your neck, looking at that computer screen or video games, or you're on your phone and, what else are you supposed to do? So it was so nice yeah. to be able to to have or know that the kids can can take care of themselves that way. And then when we got back together, you know, it felt like you know these smaller communities are able to kind of get through things together. And I think that actually I know that last year's senior class we kind of went through COVID together, and I've never felt closer to a class. It just felt like we all got through stuff together. None of us wanted to wear masks. It was it was weird. It was just crazy. But we you know we did what we needed to do. We got through it, and it was, it it made me really happy that I that I had the job that I did because 
there were some other jobs that were exposed as, as super bad and some people probably would never want to be a teacher but it actually reinforced um that that it, and i do like this job yeah yeah there's like some camaraderie and the misery right yeah <laughs> yeah yeah no i i'm glad you mentioned that because i mean being in anchorage more of an urban setting i mean as alaska goes right um you know students were some students were definitely shut-ins but i think for the most part you know you hit the nail on the head like they're able to get out they're able to hike they're able to you know get out and and kind of care for themselves you know um through the outdoors and yeah i think that i think that helped alaskans a lot mm -hmm. When you were doing editing, did you go back? I haven't read uh, read all the book, um, but when you went back to edit, you had more time to maybe look at some of the stuff you wrote regarding the virus. Did you were you tempted to to edit? I know when I was looking at because I went month by month, and so when I'm I looked at what I wrote in April. When I'm editing in December, I'm thinking, oh, man, I could totally change this. I'm a little bit off or I don't like what I wrote, but I try to do each month individually. And so when I was done with the month, I edited the month and that was it so that I wasn't editing with the benefit of hindsight. And, oh, boy, but it was tempting, though. Um, did did you want to cut more stuff? Did you want to change stuff? Like, gosh, I'm just so tired of reading this stuff. How did you how did you deal with that? Um, well, to be honest, I didn't, I didn't include a whole lot about the virus. I mean, I mentioned it early on. I was kind of like, you know, this is the, this is the background on the year in which all this fishing is taking place, you know, but, um, I don't know. I kind of put it in the reader's hands. Maybe that's lazy as a writer, but I was like, you all have your own versions of mm -hmm. what, you know, sideways meant in terms of the pandemic. Yeah. Like what follows is, is what it meant for me. It meant a lot of fishing, like a lot of things up in the air, just because I don't know you know, job wise, how this year is going to look, if I'm going to land a teaching job, like how that's going to work out. Um, so yeah, I never, I never felt compelled to like go back and, um, adjust what I said just cause I don't know, I guess I, I said what I wanted to say at nice. the time and figured it was best to just leave it at that. Just shut up at that point, you know? Yeah. yeah, that's good. I think by the time 2021 or halfway through the year started to roll around, people were so tired of it anyway. I thought, man, that, I only mentioned it in the last little bit of each chapter because I thought, hey, I'm going to write about what this is for no other reason than, than you know, keeping a time capsule of yeah. it. But, man, it ended up yeah. being just, oh, yeah, it just, <laughs> yeah, great, I mean, so much, man, so much, so much. Yeah, well, and it's funny you mentioned that. I think I used, like, the phrases toilet paper shortage, social distancing, I think I made it through the book without using the term unprecedented because I know oh, everyone was so sick of the term oh. unprecedented. I was like, if I put it in this book, people are going to shut down. I'm not using that word. Uh, I was talking with a colleague yesterday about like educational jargon that you just, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Yeah. And they used to be like good terms that had meaning and people would use them. But then once the like educational consultants and politicians get a hold of them they're just ruined oh. because then it be, there's yeah. just no meaning anymore it's just it's just buzzwords and oh man it just makes you <laughs> makes you sick but yeah we got a lot of buzzwords during the pandemic <sighs> teaching is great i love teaching you got the hours in the classroom with the kids but of course you know it's the administrative stuff like i i really like my administrative team here um but just the other stuff the extra stuff the just yeah stuff you know and oh, man that stuff kind of wears you down a little bit but the time and uh when you know kids are starting to get it kids are understanding and it's nice to like have a career that 
you feel purpose and value. And so it's not just whatever job that I have that I don't really like that I just tolerate so that I can go fishing or hunting. It's nice to have a career where you feel purpose and you feel that, you know, you're not, I, I can't wait for the day that I make enough money writing or that once my YouTube explodes and I won't have to be a teacher yeah. anymore. Cause then I think you kind of feel that, that you can sense that desperation that some people have that they want to make it because they hate their job. But you know, it's also with the writing and with the, with everything else, I I realized I really, really like this job and it's great to have the whole year be good. You know, summer's off is an amazing uh, opportunity to, you know, kind of do that other life and do the fishing and everything. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's really nice to have a job that you don't want to escape. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and as a, you know, a new, a new teacher, this is, I guess, only my second year teaching. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm finding that, I mean, sure. It's yeah. Super, super hard job, but also super rewarding, you know, like you don't get, you don't get those moments of fulfillment every day, maybe not even every week, but when you do it, it makes up for the past, you know, however much time that you just felt kind of miserable or you felt like your teaching's not really landing. Yeah. So yeah, I'm liking where I'm at and uh, yeah, it seems to work with my writing side gig pretty well. Yeah. So happy with that. Did you have a teacher that maybe inspired you or how did you get to teaching? A student asked me today if I always wanted to be a teacher. I said, no. And I was a sophomore in high school. I said, I will, once I leave, once I leave Alaska after I graduate, I'm never coming back and I am never going to be a teacher. And now here I am. So yeah. what, uh, what kind of got you to become a teacher? Yeah. So when I was in Fairbanks at my, uh, I just graduated college and I was lucky enough to get a, a job as a video producer for uh, the University of Alaska Fairbanks eCampus department. Um, and so I just lucked into that because like I mentioned earlier, my degree was in wildlife. Like it had nothing to do with video production, really. Um, that was more of a hobby that I had uh, been practicing for a while. So um, landed there. And of course, eCampus specializes in, you know, delivering online courses and um, I always thought like online courses are just a way to get a grade, like meaningful learning experiences don't happen online, um, was kind of my way of thinking, but I saw what some of my colleagues were doing and what some of the professors were doing that I would help produce videos for. And I realized teaching can be pretty amazing if you, you know, if you know, good pedagogy and you, you are meaningful with your, uh, your learning experiences. So, um, or deliberate with your learning experiences, I should say. And I thought, well, I'll give this a try. Um, you know, I guess it was just that inspiration that really made me take the leap and um, ended up enjoying it to the point where I thought, okay, this is going to be my, not really second career, but sort of, I never, mm -hmm. like you, I never thought I'd be a teacher. So. Yeah. It's nice. It's where all those cliche things are totally true. Yeah. Uh, where'd you, where'd you grow up? Oh, uh, Wyoming. We're at in Wyoming. Yeah, uh, southeast near the town of Torrington. You know where that's at. Like right up against the Nebraska border, about an hour and a half north of uh, Cheyenne, the capital. A, um, yeah, my wife got her PhD at University of Wyoming, so I spent a lot of time the last couple summers okay. uh, fly fishing up in the Bighorns, and we went over to uh, um, the Wind, Wind, River, Wind River Range. The Winds? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's the winds, but it's the snowies, right? I always screw that up. I actually was talking with my wife about this, and I always the nickname for those mountains. I always got them wrong. Uh, but yeah, my uh, a cousin of mine was actually working on a ranch up in Torrington. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So I've Funny never small world. been up there, but yeah, it's uh, Wyoming's a cool state. They got some. 
the people who know about where golden golden trout are are very oh, yeah. very secretive. That is a yeah. that is a hot. There are some websites where you can go to and some information if you if you I called a biologist to ask about some lakes that have been stocked and he gave me some information but still it was if you were in the ballpark he would then maybe fill in some gaps but it wasn't like a yeah hey where can I catch them and how do I get there it was well where do you want to go what type of experience do you want to have so you had to work for it but um do you miss anything about some of the fishing that you did down to there or the lifestyle down there I definitely do. Yeah. And, um, fishing actually not so much. I didn't, I don't know. I I'm kind of tied up with Alaska fly fishing. Now I've kind of been ruined. Like, yeah, you know, fly fishing in Wyoming is, is great and all that, but I really didn't get into fly fishing too much until I came up here in, in 2014 for college. So this is kind of like my default for, for fly fishing, but, um, in terms of other stuff, just like the landscape of Wyoming, like I'll never get that an affinity for that out of me you know i was just home for uh to visit my family for thanksgiving and um did went bird hunting every day which was amazing in late november that's something i can't do in alaska you know we're covered by three feet of snow um but yeah just walking the pastures like being able to see forever and the sunrises and sunsets there it's just amazing i i do miss wyoming a lot sometimes and and the opportunities but um I don't know. Alaska and Wyoming are, are very similar states. I feel like, I don't know if it's collective mindset or, you know, just orientation toward the outdoors or just sort of self-sufficiency, but, mm-hmm. um, it was a fairly seamless transition for me coming from Wyoming to, to Fairbanks, Alaska. And now, now Anchorage, I mean, the whole city thing is still a little off putting to me. Like I'll never, never get rid of that. Like I'm a rural, rural boy at heart. I grew yeah. up in a town of 500 people. So yeah. Yeah. It is different being on the road system here in Southeast. It's a small town that's not connected down there. You know, you drive a yeah. couple, couple hours then you are somewhere, but man, I, if I do miss something about, uh, we have mouse fishing up here, which is total, so much fun, oh, amazing, uh, yeah. but just plopping down a hopper on one of those hot meadow streams is so, that's such a great experience. And big old brown trout. I wouldn't, you know, I don't, not going to give up steelhead or anything like that for brown right. trout, yeah, but yeah. you know, it's like, ah, gosh, there's, there's other, there's other fish out there that are pretty sweet. Do you have a, a list of some places that you want to go? I know you're super excited and you have w- way more water up there to fish than you could do in a couple lifetimes, but yeah. you know, are you, are you eyeing Patagonia or Christmas Island or Belize or anything like that? Yeah, so uh, I've been eyeing Slovenia and marble trout for a while, and actually my uh, wife and I are headed there in late, right as soon as school gets out, basically. Nice. Um, so we're we're headed there. I've had to, I've actually this past summer I spent like practicing for that trip just because it's like six x seven x tippet, you know. Mm. And I've never I've never had to use seven x tippet in Alaska, you know. <laughs> oh yeah. Like practicing with those tiny tippets, like practicing euro nymphing, like doing stuff without an indicator, like been practicing for that um love to go to scandinavia i think that'd be mm-hmm. sweet i just got into spay fishing this past year and i think that'd be awesome to spay fish for uh for atlantic salmon i mean whether it's canada or scandinavia for that matter um i think that'd be sweet uh i guess north america wise yeah like uh tierra del fuego mm. again like spay fishing for sea run browns that would be amazing i have a buddy who's done that uh, a couple times and just, yeah, I can't, 
I, I probably annoy him with all my questions, you know, <laughs> but, um, and then, yeah, I get, it would be pretty fun just to do like a road trip in Montana, Wyoming, you know, yeah. during the, the height of summer and just do some cutthroat fishing, like get in the stream and just wander to your heart's content, you know? Yeah. yeah. I did the, the Madison a couple of years ago and you have to go. You can, I, yeah. I know everybody yeah. <laughs> goes there, but you still got to go to there. And, um, some of those iconic rivers just to see them just to just see just to do it frying pan river uh of course in colorado you know it gets written about you do it and it's 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 pretty fun but yeah yeah that's cool those those big name rivers i know it is you're like compelled to to do it's kind of like the kenai up here if you come to alaska you know you gotta fish the kenai yeah might as well might as well might as well yeah yeah so uh what do you got for a closer here tell people where you can uh get get the book um anything else you got for for advertisement pitches things like that okay yeah um so you can get my book it's only fishing at my uh website josephdjacksonwriter.com otherwise uh, if you just search the name it's only fishing it'll pop up on uh amazon barnes noble target you know the typical online stores um i'm trying to get a a good idea of like which bookstores in alaska it's going to be at I'm hoping it's going to be in Juneau, um, Anchorage, Fairbanks, but um, yeah, online, for those of you that aren't in those places, um, online is probably going to be your best bet. And uh, yeah, I guess keep an eye out. I've uh, got another book in the in the works, kind of similar, just essays on fly fishing. I've started working in more bird hunting and uh, small game hunting in general, I guess. So uh, that should be hopefully coming out in, I don't know, a year or two. Cool. Hard to say about the publishing world, but oh man, yes, yeah, that's the plan. It's it's crazy. I've yeah, I, that's a whole other thing. Uh, you have social media things like that where people can kind of follow the progress. Oh yeah, yeah, social media. So Instagram, I'm save a worm, fish a fly, save a worm, <laughs> and then underscore fish a fly. Um, I post updates on there, and yeah, there's a link to my to my website. And uh, yeah, Instagram is really the only one I i do or spend time on i don't know i get overwhelmed by all of the options out there these days so i try and keep it simple yeah there's no need to go to tiktok no Z- no, zero, no zero tiktok yeah. and then you're not you're not 16 so you do or 17 so right uh, no. stay, stay away from snapchat too but uh yeah yeah cool man well, it was great to meet you thanks for uh thanks for chatting really appreciate it good luck with the book and um yeah man we'll be in touch awesome well thanks again uh for having me jeff like i said uh it's pretty cool feeling to to be on this podcast, having listened to it so often. I feel like you capture the authentic Alaska. So I hope uh, I hope I helped you continue that. No, that's great. Thanks. I really appreciate that. You know, it takes uh, three hundred some episodes, but I think I'm finally starting to hit my stride a little bit. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. Well, it's excellent. Keep the keep the content coming, and uh, thanks again. Cool. Thanks.